0: Today I'm chatting with Jason Lewis, the founder of Responsive Fundraising. They're an organization that helps nonprofit leaders discover a holistic, meaningful, and sustainable approach to advancing their mission. Jason's also the author of The War on Fundraising Talent and How Small Shops Can Win. This is another one in the series speaking with fundraising experts, and of course, everything we talk about is is relevant to nonprofits that are looking at their fundraising strategy how they get closer to donors how they understand how to nurture uh, long-term giving uh, so i hope you enjoy it here's my conversation with jason lewis hey jason welcome to the task podcast how you doing
1: hey matt i am a, i'm delighted to be here man this is uh this is pretty cool i cool. Uh, i haven't talked to many people on the other side of the world i think you and i are literally 12 hours apart right
0: to be honest, I you're the one doing the hard yards because it's gone ten o'clock there, and it's ten o'clock ten o'clock in the morning for me, ten o'clock in the evening. So um, so yeah, cheers for cheers for staying up late to chat.
1: Right. Well, I've got the dark. I made the darkest cup of coffee that I possibly could, uh, so I am good to go. Cool. I got a few
0: topics I want to cover, and you know, want to talk about. Uh, you know, donor relations, fundraising strategy, this stuff. But I think before I jump into that, it'd be great uh, if you could just do a bit of an intro on on yourself, on responsive fundraising, uh, where you've come from, what you're all about.
1: Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so uh, my name's Jason Lewis. I am the founder of Responsive Fundraising, which is a, uh, tr- uh, we like to think of ourselves as a training company. We are uh, sort of uh, anti-anti-consulting I guess you could say We're, we don't we don't like consulting because we don't like to have all the answers uh, and we feel like a lot of consultants try to come in the door with answers and I, we think our work is a little we think fundraising is a little more messy and complex and that answers aren't necessarily what we need to be uh, aiming for. I'm also the uh, author of the uh, my first book was called The War for Fundraising Talent and uh did really well uh surprisingly it did really well uh the book is uh it's actually a a critique of it was a. I I described it as a hopeful an honest and hopeful critique of professional fundraising contemporary fundraising um and then uh I like you I host a podcast I host the here in the US I host the fundraising talent podcast and we broadcast a couple times a week and usually I'm having conversations just like this. So, um, that's who I am. Cool.
0: Cheers for that. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, I'm reading your book, uh, your, 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 your last book, obviously not your new one that's coming out, but I'm about, I think I'm about two thirds of the way through, through it, but really enjoying it. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the, for me, the theme of that book talks a lot to the, uh, you know, the challenges with fundraising. I mean, actually you, you, you go on about how, you know, it didn't even really exist as a, as a career you know, not that long ago. And, you know, there it is It is a kind of new space. There are a lot of challenges in it. And this whole kind of transactional level where, you know, people creating relationships. Maybe as a broad question, when, when you look at the nonprofit sector, and we'll talk about um, both schools and charities, but, you know, what are the biggest challenges for fundraisers? I know that's a wide question, but it seems like a good starting point just to really drill down on, you know, what are the biggest challenges for people managing fundraising strategy and, and you know, looking at where the money's going to come from.
1: Well, you, you sort of started along that as you were talking about the book. Um, I think I genuinely think that that fundraising, because we're only about perhaps we could say we're two, two, maybe two and a half generations in um, as a profession, you know, so if we sort of give, if we pat the baby boomers on the back, and we say that they've sort of, they sort of, birthed this profession in many ways and sort of gave it its legitimacy and gave it its the credit, you know, we gain their, you know, they are the ones who we could sort of give credit to for giving us the legitimacy and the credibility for what it is we do. Um, then perhaps if you look at where fundraising finds itself now and where fundraising sort of plays out in most nonprofit organizations, I would say, Matt, that it sort of is playing out in what I would refer to as sort of a messy adolescence. So it's, it hasn't grown up yet. And I think if you look at fundraising um, through that lens, then you can understand that we were sort of birthed with a strong attachment and affinity to PR and marketing and um, advertising and that a lot of our practices sort of resembled sort of that upbringing, if you will. That's where we came from. But as we're as as any young person does in your messy adolescence, you sort of start to grow up and ask questions like why and <clears throat> you decide what you're gonna keep for you know what mom and dad taught you that's actually what you want to keep and hold on to um, but before you can sort of mature into a young adult as a young adult, you have to sort of cut the ties and you have to uh, sever the relationship in some ways not um, you know, you kind of have to sever the ties and that's what we do as young, you know, in our messy adolescence and, um, and, and also in our adolescence, sometimes we're a little stubborn. You know, I think about my, I have four children and they're all, they're 12 to 18 years old right now. So 12, 14, 16 and 18 years old, they're all in their messy adolescence. (laughs) And sometimes They strike me as absolutely brilliant, but then sometimes it's like, are you guys do you guys actually remember how old you are? Because they are behaving not much differently than they did a decade ago. So I think I think in some ways the fundraising profession is pretty much the same way. And I think a lot of organizations, nonprofit organizations, the people that are perhaps listening to this podcast. I think a lot of organizations are, are essentially experiencing fundraising the same way. It hasn't grown up for them. It's proven itself to do, to accomplish some things, but maybe not quite so much that it, what it actually can.
0: There was, um, there, there was a quote in your book, but I forget the guy's name, right? Mark Astorica. I forgot his name, right? The.
1: Yeah, I think uh, he does. British, uh, yeah. British he's red worked red for cross. the British red cross. Yeah. I think so.
0: And I, the, the quote—I I can't remember. I'm paraphrasing, but I think the quote was around how charities often focus on, you know, many many small donations as opposed to often the big ticket. When—and I think you went on to describe that as almost—I think you used Primark from memory as yeah, well. as a yeah. comparison. This kind of transactional relationship that you know—I think that quote was from 2014. So I'm going back a few years, obviously. In a in a,
1: I think Primark is your. Primark in the United Kingdom is like our uh, uh, old Navy here in the U.S. We have a, 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 a it's basically a cheap manufacturer of clothing. Yep. Um, and what Mark was referring to in that article <clears throat> is he's referencing he's comparing fundraising and the way in which we generate this extraordinary volume of, of activity in any number of ways, similar to the way that we buy cheap t-shirts at old navy uh here in the u.s um and um and it's called throw i think it i think it's referred to as throwaway fashion so the, the you know if you can buy a t-shirt at old navy or at some other retailer so inexpensively that you might wear it once or twice and then throw it away um uh you know he was comparing that to the way that we have encouraged donors to build relationships with charities that you get this, what academics call warm glow, this very temporary warm glow, this very momentary sense that you're changing. And then you totally forget about it 24 hours later and you're looking for something else. It's like an addiction is what it is.
0: Yeah. It's a really Um, interesting like um, analogy. And I, I'm, You know, really the issue there, I mean, actually, I think he talks about it in terms of um, mitigating risk, but actually it's far more risky because I I would assume in many cases, those transactional donations are responsive, a one-off may not happen again, or at least there is no uh, kind of ongoing potential relationship with the donor, right? I mean, that's the kind of strategy in those cases. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and and... I don't think anybody has really taken to task the uh, some of what, what we would might call our um, sort of, uh, I don't think we've taken ourselves to task on the idea that when you look at fundraising, having originated from PR marketing and advertising, we're largely thinking of fundraising, as uh, we're thinking of the donor and the consumer as as one and the same and um where that becomes the most problematic is at times like we're what we're dealing with right now in the midst of a pandemic but not unlike in the midst of a recession you know 10 years ago we were talking about a recession in 10 years you know not 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 even a decade before that we were talking about september 11th when the world becomes messy and unpredictable consumer confidence just plummets and um so if you're building donor relationships that basically align with consumer behavior, at the one at the at the times when you most rely on these individuals for their charitable support, if all they're doing is behaving like consumers, consumer confidence tanked. But you know, uh, COVID nineteen sort of settled on our entire planet in uh, you know a year ago, right? Uh, this time last year. Within a couple of weeks, consumer confidence had totally tanked. That's not really a smart business model for people who rely on charitable giving when things get really messy and unpredictable. In my book,
0: well, I, this actually was a question I'd later, but wanted to kind of explore this era, what you've seen in the last year, because from from what we've seen, which is is maybe skewed a little bit because we spent quite a bit of time in the the food insecurity space last year, which actually it seemed like there was an abundance of funding at one point, which was probably an emotional response to, you know, disaster relief situation. But in general, what have you seen in the, you know, the last, last year across the board in terms of fundraising, the, the, the good and the bad and the challenges for, you know, people managing projects?
1: Well, I've been, I've been working on a couple of capital capital campaigns myself and um and and then I have a number of local charities that I stay in pretty close contact with. And then, you know, I, I'm listening, I'm, hear, I'm hearing and sort of listening to stories, you know, with my guest on the podcast, for example. And then I've sort of got to, I typically am able to keep it just like all of us, able to keep a pretty good read, sort of a macro view. And, and, and I think, Matt, what I'm most hearing is, is that those organizations that are keeping their heads above water and doing okay, and perhaps doing really well, are doing so because they had relationships with individuals for whom their, their organization mattered to them. Mm -hmm. Um, If, if, if an, if an organization had a relationship with someone, and that donor could say that this organization really matters to me, I give a damn, I'm not, this is more than just a, you know, shot in the arm, feel good, giving Tuesday sort of donation. But this is actually something that matters to me at a time like this. I'm going to actually follow through on that meaningful relationship and I'm going to give generously. Uh, I I think there's a lot of organizations around this country and abroad and everywhere else that are are perhaps really coming to the realization that the people who came through for them in the last 12 months are people that they knew the best. Mm. You know, the people that they had meaningful relationships with, um, they were not necessarily those donors who gave in mass, you know, that gave, you know, relatively inconsequential gifts at you know, in the holidays or something. These are people that they had actually had meaningful conversations with.
0: Yeah, much. Um, funnily enough, I think much the same as not not just the nonprofit sector, but the business sector. You know, been in the, yeah. in the startup space for the last few years. Yeah, that much. So yeah. you know, having those relationships is so key. Having trust, people that can support you through a challenging time is really important. So,
1: yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, uh, my 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 wife and I, we've been married. Twenty plus years, and we've got four kids, and uh, this year hasn't been easy on any of us, and it's sort of been up and down. But you know, you think of the relate, you know, the relationship between two loved ones. Or you think about the relationship between a, a parent and a child, or anything like that. When, when, when times get tough, those are the relationships that you count on. And I don't know that nonprofit organizations as a whole, have grown up to the point where they realize that when the world gets tough, when the world gets messy, when things get unpredictable, you're going to count on the people that care about you the most. They know this in every other context. If this is not rocket science. Every They know this. In some ways, this is why they exist, because people in other contexts have let people down, and that's why they stand in the, in the gap. But why they think that that's not why they why some organizations naively think that doesn't apply to fundraising i don't know mm. um, and um, it really is all about relationships and that's not just a cliche um it really does matter who cares about you we you
0: um you work across broadly across fundraising right so alumni you deal with the education sector as well yeah not, not just
1: charity yeah we've got people yeah we've got people on our team now my 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 experience is not nearly as broad as our collective experience so we've got five people on our team and we've got um uh for example we've got a member of our training team up in new england who has worked in very large higher education ivy league schools and so forth um we have we have people who've worked across the human services and the faith-based space. And I've spent a lot of time in K through 12 education. Um, And uh, yeah, so we, we kind of cover the gamut.
0: Yeah. I mean, I asked because having, been exposed to those different areas and I did, I always wonder from my background has been more from a technology standpoint so it's different you're just you know you're looking at through a different lens in terms of managing data and you know f- to effectively marketing to those to those people that are your your donors but when you look at alumni versus the kind of charity sector where you've got is there a difference in how you approach them? Because alumni, for one, you know, there's not the same, there is the retention issue with the fact that an alumni may not donate, but an alumni is an alumni. You know, you're not looking for new alumni. Whereas we don't, with a donor strategy inside a charity, you know, there are differences in how you approach it because of the fact you have a fixed audience there that are your alumni, they always will be your alumni. And it's about how you engage with them versus, you know, the donor community that supports a charity of, you know, you you kind of need that same base, actually, where you you almost need to look at it like you want that consistency in terms of the people that are always connected to you. Are there different ways to approach that? Are the lessons from one to the other?
1: Well, I think there's actually lessons for both sides, and and I I, I haven't I'm not up to speed enough with our friends, for example, in the UK uh, who do draw. Um, uh, we tend to draw the same distinctions here, but, you know, our friends in the United Kingdom, for example, use the, you know, they, they refer to the charity sector and um, we don't tend to use that, draw that distinction as as clearly, I think, I, I certainly know what they're referencing there, but, but I think the lessons to be learned. So here in the US, I think some of the discussions that I've been a part of and I'm certainly privy to in higher education is is the some of the uh, long long held assumptions that your identity with your alma mater um, and, and what it means you know to sort of have gone to this particular school and um, and so the whole conversation about alumni relations and um, a lot of that is starting to People people are starting to realize it doesn't hold as much water as it historically has, and if if your if your identity if your identity as an individual human being is not we the the, the way the story goes I've got a colleague of mine who um, uh, uh, has done some significant research. Um, uh, Travis McDermott in, uh, in, in Indianapolis would tell you, uh, he he did some graduate work on this topic of alumni identity. And it's the idea what Travis would talk to us about is the idea that if a young person graduates from college and you're assuming that five years and 10 years and 20 years out, that their identity is still very much tied up into where they went to college um that's actually quite flawed Mm. but it's but it's actually what we as America especially Americans have long long believed and so these higher education for a lot of people has assumed that you could sort of ride that wave forever that because they went to our you know because they graduated from you know such and such a state you know such and such a you whatever Um, that they would continue to give forever and that's not that's not holding that's not holding water anymore Um, however to sort of flip that around um, I think the charity sector which in our context would be more of your grassroots organizations here in the U.S. small local charitable organizations lots of them meeting very you know direct needs you know very much on the ground and very community-centered I think a lot of these organizations have made the mistaken assumption that they can't compete with those larger institutions. And I think that's a flawed assumption that just simply because you're not that really large institution or you're not that large healthcare organization or you're not not that large international charity because you're that mom and pop charity on the corner that might run a, a local thrift store or something to keep the lights on, um, I think, I think people are, I think today's contemporary donor is waking up to the idea that some of those organizations deserve just as much support, if not in some cases more support. And that donor is just as likely to get their identity wrapped up in a healthy way with that local charity, just as much, if not more than they ever would with where they went to college. Yeah, Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does make sense actually. And um, maybe slightly a side topic but yeah when you're talking about i was just thinking about you know this kind of the the differences in the correlations between large charities and your your kind of smaller charities and of course this rise of the social enterprise as well which has been you know i think really the last 10 years where these kind of i call them smart charities i don't even know it's a if it's a word but we kind of use that word because what what we're doing with technology you know we're looking for smart charities so yeah makes sense and i yeah, I mean, do you that these are you seeing smaller kind of niftier charities that are making really smart decisions? It's probably harder anyway when you're inside a big, big, you know, when you're in inside. Oh, I'm forgetting now the Red Cross or these huge charities. No, because, like, I, new, I think. New,
1: uh, new, so, I, I'm sure you guys are paying attention to what these, uh, you know, what Scott Harrison is doing at Charity Water. I think is absolutely mm. remarkable. Um, yeah. I've read his book. I I use his concepts. Scott is not the I teach, you know, I teach over here at the local college here in their social entrepreneurship and and nonprofit management program. And I use Scott's narrative all the time. Um, All of our training models, Mm -hmm. I have figured out the way that what Charity Water is doing. I mean, Charity Water is a hip, primarily web based and, you know, international charity putting, you know, addressing the needs of, you know, Third world countries in terms of getting access to water but what mark what 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 he is all what scott has also done um is um he has figured out he has figured out how to design a fundraising operation that sort of recognizes where donors happen to be in their giving process so he's not throwing out he's not throwing out some of that transactional fundraising for example that we were pick, we were picking on at the beginning of the conversation he just totally knows how to design a fundraising operation to leverage that alongside the need for very significant very meaningful and very long term committed donors and so if you know how to design a fundraising operation that knows that sort of combines and designs according to these it's it's actually a concept. There's a there's a concept that's come out of Stanford and a couple other places called market design. If we took the if we took the concepts of market design and we applied it to fundraising and we designed fundraising instead of instead of arguing over whether fundraising is is an art or a science, and we said okay, it's an op. You can actually design really good fundraising. You can you can combine a really good new acquisition program with a really solid you know uh, converting them into long-term meaningful relationships and then moving some of them into the most significant uh, giving opportunities. Um, I, I Charity have, water's doing that.
0: I haven't read his book actually, but funnily enough, he did come up. We, uh, on my last podcast, we we're chatting about it briefly. And I know I must've read it somewhere. How he, I mean, he's very good at using storytelling and actually the methodology of the kind of Hollywood script methodology of, yeah, you know, hooking people in so that you're, yeah. you're emotionally bought into the process um you
1: know and, the, and the he gets like and, and and you know Matt he gets a lot of pushback he gets a lot of pushback from he's taking a lot of heat from those who want to uh his what is known as and it wasn't even his idea he he would be the first um he would be one of the first ones to tell you that his 100% uh which quite quite honestly his 100% thing where hundred percent of your money goes directly to a well in a third world country sort of thing. Um, it's, it's completely a marketing gimmick. Um, and it's completely a marketing gimmick and he, and he knows he picked it up from somebody else, but what he's also doing there is he knows who that donor is, who's going to respond to that particular type of an appeal. And he also knows the donor for whom that's not going to appeal to. Um, and he's designed a fundraising strategy around it um and and what is and what has happened is is that the whole the whole not the whole but you know corners of the nonprofit sector uh who like to dig in their heels and and defend the status quo have taken issue with it and um and, and I say you know I say I, he he's raising a hell of a lot of money and more power to him I don't know his business model what so is he he's got a business model
0: whereby you donate, so you know one hundred percent goes there, and then he what? He has some sort of funding mechanism to pay the operational cost of the charity, does he? Which I've seen, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. So he has a he has what's called a hundred percent model, and he did not he he did not come up. Scott did not come up with this. Um, we teach that we teach something very similar that has nothing to do with the percentages of money, but essentially he, he intuitively, he, he, and he doesn't use this language, but at responsive, we use the language of what's called the first, the second, and the third lane. There's three lanes that are sort of playing out in your fundraising operation. What he calls his first lane is essentially what, what is, what is known in the marketplace as his first lane is essentially this hundred percent concept. And, and, and what, what the donor in the first lane experiences, or what is assured of is that 100% of their dollar will absolutely go where they want it to go. And they'll use a platform, that, and And Charity Water has platforms similar to what you all do at TASC um, and gives very detailed, very vivid information about where the money goes and what's, you know, they, they give donors very meaningful reports um, and, and they commit to that for a $25 donor. Um, he also has a program that's very characteristic of what we teach at responsive which is which is that of the the middle lane where he has about 150 160 donors who are committing un unre- you know six and seven figure unrestricted multi-year gifts to basically underwrite the overhead or the administrative cost of the organization mm-hmm. um, and he actually has built into his and and I don't think he would take issue with me calling it this but his marketing gimmick is really built around the idea that he has two distinct checking accounts they maintain two distinct checking accounts to sort of acknowledge these two sort of flows of inflows of cash and uh and that assures that the donor who's giving 25 that that money's going there um and uh i think i think it's pretty sharp
0: yeah, it's really interesting i've seen i know um a much much smaller organization but highly successful in this part of the world down in australia actually who it's a different model but it has the same ultimately it has the same marketing process and outcome so if you're a donor That's it. you give so this is a guy peter bain so i've known for a while, runs hands across the water they they're a, he's an ex um forensics guy from the police force got involved in non-profit in charity after the tsunami because he was identifying bodies but yeah his model i mean it's the same outcome so he has a consulting business that subsidizes the operational cost of the charity if i understand correctly yeah uh, i remember correctly but the point is you make a donation you donate 100 bucks it's going to you know the the, the orphanage itself and it, it's an interesting area because i think there are arguments both sides i absolutely understand why that model works, why it's successful, and why it's a good thing. At the same time, there's this. I, I think it might be Dan Palotta who makes the argument of, you know, not worrying sometimes about operational costs of charities because you wouldn't with a business, for example. If a, you know, if you funded a startup, you would expect them to spend money to progress and go forward. There's a there's a kind of balance here, right? And and obviously, we don't want charities that are burning, you know. 85% running on an 85% operational cost framework, you know, you want them running on, on a kind of single digit, which is challenging. But there is a balance, because it's it's difficult in some cases, uh, larger charities that are not, ha- have not entered the market in that way cannot suddenly, well, it's very hard to flip to a business model that provides this sort of donor incentive, I suppose. And I think there's sometimes a counter argument, we say, if you want good people, and you want to, you know, have an impact, then you've got to absorb some of that cost into the into the business model of the charity
1: yeah i, I mean the thing about the thing about what dan and dan's message has resonated let, let's so dan's reson dan's message has resonated more with fundraising types and non types much more than scott's has in large part because dan is a marketer and he knows his audience and his audience are the nonprofit organizations who really just want to who want to get quite comfortable in my mind with arms length fundraising and ultimately don't want to take anybody out to lunch. What Dan was doing was remarkable in terms of acquiring the initial gift and acquiring the new donor, but at the end of the day you can't have that same donor come back over and over again and run in those those runs and walks and he was doing doing amazing things, but he was doing it all in the new what I would consider to be the lane one, new acquisition lane. At some point, you have to transition that that donor into a into a donor, a meaningful donor relationship where they're not actually buying some sort of experience attached to it. Um it, it he was selling remarkably meaningful consumer experiences, what is what he was doing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um but it, it wasn't necessarily, you know, it wasn't necessarily the most efficient, not because it need necessarily needed it to be, but but those organizations that are involved in those the, were, would have been enlisting Dan's company, if they're smart, and most of them are, they know to transition a portion of those donors into what I call the middle lane. And that's the middle lane where... It's not necessary to, to go on the on a you know on a cross country bike ride necessarily to you know cure some disease. You can actually just sit at a lunch table and negotiate a pretty meaningful gift with a with a gift officer, um, and 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 you know ninety five percent of that of that donation will go directly to that cause. Um, as you move into what we call it at, at responsive these innermost lanes, lane two and three the efficiency becomes not only efficient, but it becomes hyper-efficient. Um, and so what you tolerate the inefficiency that's built into what uh, Dan was building a case for. The, the, the problem, Matt, the problem that the, all the people who like to get really excited about what Dan Pilata talked about in his Ted talk, for example, is, is that those companies like he was building essentially put fundraising professionals out of jobs. Um, if nonprofit organizations and, and fundraising professionals themselves do not get their heads on straight about what Dan Pelota and others like himself are sort of advocating for, um, there's a remarkable amount of power and capability in our marketplace now to completely outsource those types of functions. And so the more the more that that nonprofit organizations wake up to the idea that we can outsource essentially donor new donor acquisition to a company like Dan's, but at the same time, basically make the role of the fundraising professional unnecessary unless you know how to take that donor who's now participated in that fundraising initiative and move them away from the necessity of that special event or, or what have you fundraising professionals have not yet and this gets back to my earlier comment about growing up fundraising professionals have yet to figure out that initial gifts that new donor that new that, that that there's not an extraordinary margin on that gift anyway and that 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 new donor isn't really the place where they get they get they get a lot of applause fundraising professionals are recognized and admired for meaningful work when they're taking people out to lunch Asking them for very meaningful, subsequent gifts, and um, that's when they can shine differently than somebody like Dan's company can shine.
0: Yeah, well, I think I mean just much like a business retaining clients. I mean, yeah, the cost of acquisition yes, it's the same thing. It's, it, yes, retaining is the same, same issue, right? And, and the yeah. same.
1: Yeah, I mean Dan's company. Dan's company, what Dan's company was doing and Dan's company went out of business because he got beat up about it. And that's what got, that's what sort of what helped him build his platform. But Dan's company basically was built on the same business model that Starbucks spends, Starbucks spends $15 to sell me my first cup of coffee. That's what Dan's company was doing for nonprofit organizations. What Starbucks also knows is they're not spending $15 for every subsequent cup of coffee that I buy. They're making mega margins on every subsequent, you know, every time I go in there and buy a yet another cup of coffee for three and a half dollars, um, they're not spending that $15 anymore.
0: Yeah. Right. i m- maybe a good segue to, I wanted to talk to you about social enterprise and maybe this is a good, good time to chat sure. about it. I don't think we pre on our kind of pre-chat, whether we talked about it at all, but I spent quite a bit of time, you know, in inside the kind of social enterprise space in Singapore, mentoring. I mean it's a different model. It's for me actually when I look at it, it's just often businesses doing the right thing. I mean you know this kind of term social enterprise. However, many nonprofits, many charities in the last that I've come across in the last kind of five, 10 years have been looking for adopting these models, not not as a holistic model, but into one part of the charity, maybe where they have a, a shop or a chain of shop that sells products or uh, are you seeing the kind of propagation of this is it you, you know you you do you have any experience in the social enterprise space do you see it as something intrinsically different or you know this kind of crea- adopting a for-profit business model inside a charity where you can have then revenue that is consistent that's not relying on donors
1: yeah, I think so. I teach a social entrepreneurship class over at the college, and one of the things I always point out to my students is is that they're basically enrolling at this college and uh, walking around the campus. They'll come to re- come to the realization that social entrepreneurship is, has actually been around quite a long time, and your college campuses are usually the best example of it. There's a lot of nonprofit and for-profit activity going on, especially the larger our nonprofit organizations get, the more um, the more they tend to sort of ride the you know they, the t- more they tend to find innovative ways to use both for-profit and non-profit um, uh, strategies to generate revenue I, I think the i think the challenge i think both the challenge and the opportunity though is matt and 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 i say this to my students is is that i don't know that we're all geared up and designed As people, as human beings, I don't think we're all geared up necessarily to necessarily shine in one of in in all these areas. And so I I think we see a lot of nonprofit organizations being led by people who are really good in the nonprofit sector and who perhaps need to get really good at just simply knowing how to raise charitable dollars, trying to be entrepreneurs in the business sense. They would have never gone to college and get an, gotten a business degree. They wouldn't have gotten an MBA. It wasn't who they were, and they don't need to be trying to do it at the local, you know, mom and, shop, mom and, shop, mom and pop charity either. On the other hand, though, I think we've got a lot of young people that are, uh, like the, the textbook that I use, for example, is a, uh, the woman who teaches uh, social entrepreneurship at Harvard. I use her textbook for my class. Um, I think we've got a generation of young people that are coming into the uh, whatever this sector is that sort of exists between the two sectors um, coming in and saying that there are there are some pretty innovative ways to use to use the insights of both sectors Um, and also also uh, keep in mind, too, they they're also becoming increasingly aware of being able to leverage you know, subsidies that they might be able to get from the government and others. So it's a, it's a sort of a a triad of, of, of innovation, if you will, um, of bringing together all three um, mindsets, worldviews, if you will, and, and, and developing strategies um, to solve, you know, some of our biggest problems. Um, and, And I think some of this is coming out of Silicon Valley, you know, Google Google's, Google's foundation is a Google's foundation. So the money that you would actually get from Google, if you received a Google grant as a, as a nonprofit organization actually comes from a traditional LLC. Um, and actually, you know, it's not a, it's not actually structured as a 501c3. Um, so you, you, you actually see companies sort of, sort of playing games and experimenting, um, innovating, with these different structures that we have finding different ways to.
0: And that um, money's going into what, into foundations or into like impact investments or businesses that have a social model, you mean, right? Not going in.
1: Yeah. I mean, now some of this, some of this is going to, depending on who the, depending on who our listener is, Matt, because obviously we're probably, we're talking to a much, probably a pretty international audience at this particular point, but here in the United States, we have, structures. Um, m- with my last employer, for example, we propped up one. Um, uh, we have what are called uh, limited liability, sort of low profit or limited liability, sort of like our B Corps. In some spaces, we're talking about B Corps. Yep. So these are these are enterprises that sort of sit literally on the fence between a for profit and a nonprofit. And what these enterprises are starting to figure out, which has always been written into the U.S. tax code, is that they can actually appeal to private foundations for for monies that we generally assume to only be going to uh, only be going to uh, nonprofits, but actually can go to a for-profit if, in fact, that that for-profit is actually fulfilling the mission, delivering on the mission of that. Uh, of of that what that foundation intends to give to Uh, they're what they're what are called program related investments so um a a private foundation here in the u.s um you didn't see a lot of this until the last say 20 years or so when we started to he see some more of this um sort of this investment minded younger donor coming in and saying I want to I want a different role in my relationship and so they found innovative ways to um, utilize the tax code and um, various different corporate structures to, uh, to do some of this. Some of this has to do with my, uh, some of the, some of this has been uh, very creatively used in the micro lending space and so forth.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I, we, we're kind of getting drawn to a close, but I, I wanted to um, maybe get back to the nonprofit stuff and fundraising. We haven't talked about tech and maybe we'll do that on, my podcast, or, or maybe we'll just do a snippet into it. But you know, what do you see? You must come across technology quite a bit. I think when we spoke before, you talked about one of the main issues is just is often you know the database side of things, nonprofits having you know the the huge databases not necessarily having the effect on you know the, the data that's in there. What what are you seeing broadly across technology, and you know how people are using it smartly? I know that's a huge subject area, and we'll we'll drill down on our podcast. But,
1: I just yeah. I I think when it comes to fundraising specific, um, I like what Peter Thiel says about putting technology sort of in the complementary seat rather than the competitive seat. Um, Thiel talks about the idea that we should not be we should be careful to figure out. Those places in our, in our economy where human beings are competitive with technology, which is to say, where is technology you know, going to essentially do my job for me at some point? Um, and then there are technologies, which I think are far more relevant to what it is we do as fundraisers. There are technologies that are truly complementary to the work that human beings can do. And when you find a complementary technology, that can be complementary to what I can contribute as a human being, and 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 presumably will only be able will always be able to do better as a human being. That's what Teal's talking about about complementary technologies. Um, and I see the thing the thing is complementary technologies don't do the work for you. They just make you more they make you more efficient. They more make you more effective at it. But I think what I've started to realize in our space is, is that complementary technologies, Matt, are also not as fascinating (laughs) because they don't behave like robots. And we're always fascinated by technology that, you know, anything that behaves like a robot is kind of fascinating. And, And I think we need to sort of look critically about the technology that we're looking at and say, okay, if this technology is that fascinating is it so fascinating essentially it's going to work me out of a job um technology that allows me there's some remarkable platforms here in the u.s um and i won't and there's several of them there's a couple of companies that are all doing very similar things in terms of being able to expedite the process of getting the major gift officer in front of the donor more quickly um It's 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 the organization. There's a lot of there's a lot of lead time that is lost because you have highly relational people that are not terribly organized that spend way too much time between the point at which the donor needs to be called and asked for a meeting and the point at which they're actually sitting at the lunch table. And that's that's the opportunity for technology to because the data is already in the system. If you think about it, the data is already there, and so if the system can expedite the process so that you know John or Sally, the development officer, are more quickly in front of the donor at the lunch table, and this is obviously in a post-pandemic sort of context, but the quicker we can actually get that that fundraiser in front of that donor, the more the the, the faster they can have that meaningful conversation and solidify that relationship in a much more meaningful way. It sounds um, sounds much like the
0: same, again, yeah. the same conversation you would have. I used to work in the CRM space in, in the for-profit world for many years, but it, yeah, it's much the, it's the same same issue for a sales guy working for a big company selling a product. Yes. And technology. It yes, it, it really is. Relationship and get that person in front of the right person faster is what's going to lead yeah. to a sale.
1: So uh, very similar. Yes, it's it's not and and that's where right yeah you, you 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 want that development officer and you want mrs smith sitting at that local diner together having a cup of tea having a meaningful conversation that you can't do that with a robot on e, on either side of that lunch table and so that's where human beings need to be technology can get you much more quickly to that lunch table um and then there's a whole host of follow-up opportunities that Mrs Mrs Smith's not going to sit there and and if your development officer's talented enough Mrs Smith's going to sit there and reveal to you all sorts of follow follow follow-up opportunities some of which may not have to do directly with the gift you know that that might be of that may be being discussed and technology can actually streamline and help you get that stuff delivered on much more quickly and much more consistently that's the other thing is is that high again that highly relational development officer that knows how to sit there and have a meaningful conversation with mrs smith is oftentimes the the least organized in terms of following up after that lunch table meeting and making sure that mrs smith gets the following follow-up information that she wants Salespeople are pretty much the same way sales are notorious for dropping the ball on what what on on follow-up um, so design technology to make sure that that follow up happens, and um, and she in most cases she won't know the difference.
0: Yeah, good good advice. And uh, back to your point of yeah, I mean technology really needs to enhance, not yeah. It's I mean I'm looking, I'm, lo- I'm looking at what we're using here. You know, in the last twelve months, I mean the, the I'm a I've been a face to face person throughout my life, and now my reliance on you know applications like we're using now is been considerable but massively useful so however i don't think the world needs another chat app i mean the amount of chat apps we have in the world now is, <laughs> is but someone's gonna launch one like, how, many more, how many more chat apps can we get launched you know it's kind of crazy
1: right um i didn't have any- but it is what we're it is what we're fascinated see that's the thing it is what we're fascinated with and it is what the 22 year old you know at the that thinks that he or she can come up with and so that's what tends to fascinate it, fascinate us, fascinate us, but it's not necessarily what actually gets the job done really well.
0: Yeah. Very, very true. Um, I, I didn't know any more questions. I know we're going to do another podcast speaking the other way, but, um, is there anything I haven't asked that you want to share, um, based on the kind of nonprofit audience or, um, if not, do you want to share your details where people can learn more, get hold of if they want, if they want to.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Matt. This has been, certainly been a pleasure. And, uh, and we're going to flip the, uh, we're going to flip the switch off and flip it back on. And I'm going to have a conversation with you and learn more about what's, what's coming out of what's in your head. Um, yeah. If anybody's interested in learning more about responsive fundraising, we are at responsive fundraising.com. Uh, in my book, the war for fundraising talent is, uh, is easily findable on Amazon and my forthcoming book, the fundraising fundraising in an unpredictable world will be out in September. Um, and, uh, this has been great thank you i appreciate
0: it jason yeah look forward to chatting more and i'll um i'll leave all those details in the in the in the the notes for anyone that's listening so
1: this is a podcast from task task helps you create and measure impact for more information please visit task.io